This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. The chance to sit down with Dr. Carolyn Bucky, who's an epidemiologist and associate professor of epidemiology and the associate director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at the Harvard School of Public Health. You know, we've been seeing so much about different models for how COVID transmits, how we can do tracing, and yet those models don't always agree with each other. I loved having this conversation because I could see two different methods or more of how that happens. It's a diversity of thinking, and there's a diversity of methodologies. Um, I think Dr. Bucky is amazing. Uh, she's really unique in this field, and I enjoyed this conversation. Check it out. Hello, Caroline. Thanks for coming. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, well, I, I think that you're probably... Um, Talk, you've probably spoken about COVID um, more than most people, yet everybody is speaking about COVID all the time. Um, you must be more fatigued than the rest of us. <laughs> um, yes, it feels as if COVID has displaced pretty much um, everything else from my life for the last eight months. And there's been a lot of talk and not just talk um, to the press and to policymakers, but also between scientists as well as and family members and neighbors. And it seems as if that's what everyone's talking about all the time these days. Right. And I'm, I, I assume everybody comes to you, especially out, even within the field, but outside of the field as the person that's going to have wisdom and give advice on and sort of a, a look into what the world's going to be like. Yeah, I think... Um, Anyone who's an infectious disease epidemiologist um, is treated as the expert in all things to do with coronavirus by their friends and family, and sometimes by the press as well. In fact, I was recently um, I, I recently was on Twitter and noted that there are these kind of layers of expertise where within academia we have very specific niches where we are truly the expert in that field. And then we have a broader uh, sort of area of research where we can be considered an expert in, you know, compared to a lay person. Um, and then, you know, and then there's this whole hazy field beyond that where sometimes it's not easy for um, the press or lay audience to know who the experts are, to know really who has expertise and who doesn't. And um, so expertise is a slippery concept and a difficult thing to define. And it's, of course, always relative. So to my family, to my neighbors, to the to teachers at school, I'm the supreme expert on everything to do with COVID. But of course, that's not really true. My actual area of expertise is quite narrow. Uh, well, so. well, I, I want to I'd love to get into your expertise, but um, I, you know, I, I try to think of the role of, of that um, time and data plays in our understanding of COVID and how you look at it, and then the how that leads to confidence in what you say about it, as opposed to are you, you have worked on malaria? Is that right? You're a, yeah, well, most of my work is on malaria, but I work on many different pathogens and different kinds of epidemiological dynamics in general. And a lot of the tools and methods that we use 
are the same. They're transferable. So many of the modeling frameworks that have been used for COVID are um, applicable to many different kinds of pathogen. And so the pivot to apply them to COVID was fairly straightforward for many of us uh, because the, the dynamics themselves follow similar, similar rules. Well, so I mean, we have... God, the amount of, the amount of data you must have on malaria is enormous. You have I don't know, six or eight months on COVID, but then there was SARS, and you know the, how how much of a difference does that make, and how are you trying to catch up? I mean, do do you, do you reach kind of plateau where you say, okay, I have enough data, so now it's just in the creation of the correct model? I mean, I, I don't yeah. know how it works in epidemiology. So I I think that there's um. There are some things that we understand and that we understood very quickly when this pathogen emerged, right? It was quite soon, it was apparent that this was a respiratory, uh, directly transmitted virus. Um, So even just knowing that, we knew the kinds of um, contacts that would be important for transmission, uh, and we knew the kinds of models that we use for respiratory pathogens in general. There were already model frameworks that would be relevant for this disease. What we didn't know were the basic parameters underlying that model structure. So the model structure itself was a a fairly uh, well-established tool, um, but what we didn't have were the parameters of, for example, um, the the epidemiology itself. So, how long was the incubation period? That's the you know the time between exposure and symptoms. How long until you were infectious? Uh, and it turns out that you're infectious before you have symptoms, which is always problematic for the spread of this kind of infection. And then, you know, lots and lots of questions about immunity, of course. Um, and so the model structures uh, that we were using early on were kind of standard methodologically, but we had to fill in these parameters as we went. And there are still many uncertainties, especially around longer term outcomes and things like immunity. But I would say that quite early on, we had the basics of the epidemiology, um, at least the parameters that defined the early stages of the epidemic. Uh, but we're still very uncertain about some other aspects. And I think one thing that the models um, have struggled with um, past the first initial epidemic peak uh, is the issue of social behavior and the importance of individual behavior patterns and um, in determining the contacts that underlie the dynamics of the disease. And those things, in in the simplest models, you make very sort of abstract assumptions about random mixing and how people contact each other and how frequently that are clearly simplifications of reality. But once the pandemic started to spread and um, interventions went into place that affected contact rates and people started reacting in, in different ways, then the parameter, that part of the model, those parameters in the model became much, much harder to, to, um, I guess, estimate accurately. Um, And that's contributed to a lot of the uncertainty around model projections. And I think that's why we've seen less and less modeling forecasts in the press, right? Because now a lot of what's going to happen with the epidemic really depends on social, political, behavioral things. Right. We're not talking about the same type of containment and also some of... So in early March, actually, I, I I had COVID sort of early on. And, oh, really? Yeah, and I'd had some previous not great 
health condition. So it wasn't, it wasn't terrific. I, I ended up treating it myself in different ways, but we talked about that another time, but oh, I'm sorry. Um, no, no, it's, it's good now. And it was, uh, you know, but, um, I, I was in Washington, DC. I was on a uh, panel, um, with somebody who had worked on, on SARS containment, um, in China, I think it was 2003. Is that when SARS was? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, and at that point, so we're talking about early March, I was around, you know, expertish people and people you would know. And, um, you know, there was there was a big question about seasonality, for instance. So yeah. the, you had the optimistic group that said, yep, it's going to spread very quickly now, but this must be seasonal. And I, you know, knowing as little as I do, I was there as this sort of material scientist talking about interesting other things. I was talking about UVC LEDs and some other some other things. And uh, there was a huge amount of hope placed in that you know, in March, I think, at least the people I was speaking to. Um, and I was saying, well, I can't, I can't believe you, we don't have a good understanding of that. Um, and then it became, okay, it looks like there's no, the, the, the seasonal effect isn't as hopeful as we had thought. But, you know, immunity should be, you know, SARS was three years or something like that. So there's still a chance for containment. And if we, and a vaccine might you know, I, I was so surprised we'd sequence this thing in January, you know, yeah. so I, I, in, in my stupid stupidity, thought we would have solved a lot of these basic questions. Where do we stand right now, do you think, on, on you know, understanding whether it can be contained at all in an, and on immunity issues? Well, the first thing I think it's important to point out is that um, the seasonality question early on, the reason people were hopeful um, is is because there are other seasonal coronaviruses that have a very seasonal dynamic um, and tend to just peak in the winter. And, uh, you know, so a lot of what we were going on to parameterize the early models and try and understand what was going to happen was really based on our understanding of these other seasonal coronaviruses. So, you know, so the idea that it might have a strong seasonal signal was not unreasonable, although there had already been successful transmission in places that were quite tropical and hot and, you know, um, in Asia. Um, so, it, so uh, you know, I think that we, we weren't sure what to expect in terms of seasonality. And indeed, it could be the, f- the fact that in the future, this will become a seasonal um, epidemic um, for various reasons. And so... I think the seasonality uh, is still a little bit in question, um, but we know that there is efficient transmission, that it can happen even without seasonality. Um, I think a lot of us in early March were less hopeful than the people you describe and thought that well, this was going to be... Well, it was really one person, but I don't want to embarrass him for getting it wrong here, but uh, it was really one person who is a super smart person. It's just, you know... Like well, you I mean, said, the, this... This brings us back to um, you can be super smart and not an expert in infectious disease dynamics. Yeah. And right. um, and so I think that has been a, a difficult a difficult ecology to navigate for many of us, um, where this has fallen squarely in our area of expertise. And we're seeing people who might be very good in their field in another field coming out with very strong statements that don't seem to be grounded in the specific expertise they would need to have those opinions. So, um, but but I do think that um, the this idea that the seasonality would help was not unreasonable, but there was already a hint that that wasn't going to be the case. 
Um, and again, then there's, then there's a question of how you translate science to policy and, and the policymaker's role in deciding to choose a conservative course of action or not, you know, um, all of well, those questions. Yeah. I mean, that's been a kind of frustrating thing to me the whole time. But then, you know, you, I think that most of us try to figure out what, what is either politically motivated, what has certain levels of cowardice to it, and what is, you know, what is very, you know, if we're just trying to learn something and we get it wrong. Yeah, I, I think that a lot, a lot of people are experiencing that. I mean, I've I've gotten very frustrated with, uh, you know, certain things that seem to be at least politically, um, maybe not motivated, but at least politically, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe politically motivated. Actually. I mean, I think the the other thing that you the other thing that you said right, which was that we had the sequence early on. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. So. Um, you know, science and technology, they don't move in linear ways right. in terms of progress, right? So, you know, genomic sequencing has just kind of taken off over the last 20 years um, and is now sort of a, a real-time surveillance exercise in many in many ways. And, and that's amazing. Um, knowing the sequence of something does not necessarily tell you anything about its epidemiology and its clinical outcomes and these kinds yes, of things. Explain that to us. Yeah. So, um, well, so, you know, the, once you know the gene sequence of the, the pathogen that's causing a particular disease, um, what that, so first of all, you identify what's causing the disease. So we knew it was a coronavirus. We knew how it related to other coronaviruses. And that gave us some hints about what, how it might behave based on other types of pathogens that are related. Um, it also allows you to start tracking the, the spread of the disease and relating um, viruses from one place to others. So to try and understand the spatial and temporal dynamics of the epidemic as it spreads. And the ability to do that depends on the pace of mutation of the virus relative to the pace of the epidemic itself. So if it has an extremely low mutation rate, then you can't distinguish, you know, there's no signal. You can't distinguish between all the different viruses and you can't reconstruct the oh. epidemic. If it mutates very, very fast, then there's too much diversity and there's no signal. Um, and then the thing about this virus is it's sort of in the in between where you can start to reconstruct the epidemic spread using the sequences. So, okay. So you would, you would not, this is interesting. And I, so if it, if there were no mutation at all, you couldn't heavily weight the genomic aspect of this. It would, it, but if, if it mutated too fast, you couldn't, this is actually useful now because there's some time has gone by. You can, you can measure every week if you wanted the genome of uh, of um, COVID and right, so any any emerging pathogen, right, um, or even endemic pathogens too, um, the the extent to which you can recreate epidemics or track transmission chains um, or locate the source, of, you know, the origin of a particular um, case um, depends on how how diverse the pathogen is and how quickly it it mutates or or diversifies, right. and so. It happens that with this virus, um, it has actually has a relatively low mutation rate, but it's mutating fast enough that we can start to see patterns in the genomes that can, for example, show how the virus is spreading between regions and, and show importation events and that kind of thing. 
Um, so that's been a really interesting use of this technology um, for pandemic, uh, for an understanding of the pandemic. Um, it doesn't necessarily immediately translate into a vaccine. And, and what I would say is that the pace of science on vaccine development um, and, and science in general is just has been staggering. You know, the number of preprints and the number of um, randomized controlled trials and so on has been astonishing. Um, and the, the problem is that, of course, as urgent as it is, you can't rush randomized controlled trials because you have to make sure they're safe. And that is, of course, highlighted by the, the Oxford trial. Yeah. But right. how, I, I, you know, as it's, at least before this, and I still try to hold on to whatever optimism I can for technology to be able to move faster than it has in what I think has been a fairly stagnant time period over the last 15 years or so. I mean, what, you know, I, I immediately looked for things that could be, that were hopeful, that could get pushed with urgency that didn't, that, that seemed to be lagging before. And getting to like an RNA vector delivery type system for, I mean, th- this whether it get whether it happens by November or January is one thing, but I how long do you think it would have taken in a natural course of every if you know we see no major global pandemic for us to get to this type of um, delivery system or the types of vaccines that are being looked at now. You mean if we hadn't had this acceleration? If we hadn't had COVID, and you have companies like Moderna, and you have these interesting new types of. Forgetting even the companies, these new types of factors. I I think one of the problems for vaccines is that you need a market. Um, And so, and so, yeah. And so, if you don't know what you're making a vaccine against, you, it's very hard. So, you know, the organization CEPI? Yes, sir. Right. So, they're basically making bets about what we might need vaccines for uh, as emerging potential pandemic outbreaks right and so it's you know there's there's vaccine development for things that we know that that are already underway things like dengue and so on and then this idea that how do we how do we think about pandemic preparedness when we don't know what will emerge in the future but you know i'm i'm curious because i'm again i I don't understand enough about virology or uh but if there seemed to not be a great drive and I don't know how fast a common cold mutates. I, I really don't know. But as a as a coronavirus, if for experimental purposes alone, could a company have developed a um, a cold vaccine that would be easily transferable to COVID? So, because there's not there are enough cases, obviously, every year. So I'm also not a virologist. Right. No, um, I know that. And, uh, I know that. So, okay. Now we're stepping into everybody yeah. expects you to know everything. <laughs> no. So, so I'm not a virologist, and I, you know, obviously, and and also, I I think it's important to say that making a an effective vaccine is not is not trivial, and part of that is because so, um, you know, with so so, so let's take malaria because I do know about malaria. Yeah, yeah. Um, with malaria, it's not one thing. You have you know, thousands of different variants circulating to which you make specific immune responses. And at any point in time, somebody might have 5, 10, 15 different strains of malaria in their blood at any point in time. So when you make, when you're trying to make a malaria vaccine, which people have been trying to for decades, 
um, you're battling not just the fact that people don't really become immune to malaria. So we, we don't have a really strong sterilizing immune response. Um, but also you've got this very adaptable parasite that is not one thing. It's lots and lots of different things in different places. Um, and in some ways, the, the common cold is also a multi-strain system. There's a ton of diversity. And so even defining what the right vaccine target, even understanding what the immune response, actually, <laughs> but even understanding what the, like, which of the immune responses that you make to a complex pathogen, which of those are protective, that's even a hard problem. I think for this coronavirus, it's it's a bit easier because it it doesn't seem to be mutating so fast that we've got multiple, multiple you know many many strains um but you know until this pandemic it's unclear to me how much r&d or prioritization of coronavirus vaccines there was right anyway uh, and it could be right. that we there, could aren't, there wasn't much whether we would have had a cold vaccine or not at least it, you know or working on vaccines for what i mean it, 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 yeah it seems like this may be at least a call to action to look at un, you know, different types of viruses and start to find enough data ahead of time in case, I guess. Well, I know. Well, I think that there, there is a, a general problem here, which is that um, it's it until now and maybe even after now, it's very hard to get people to invest in pandemic preparedness. It's really hard to, to prepare. It's, and generally what's happened is a lot of the funding comes in a reactionary way. Like Ebola happened, funding was quickly made available for Ebola stuff, um, but there's no way, you know, you, it, the surveillance systems weren't in place. There hadn't been an emphasis on trying to get countries prepared for possible outbreaks. Um, so I think that's also just a natural problem, which is that we're not good at preparing. We're yeah. better at reacting. Yeah, I mean this this has been true for everything in fall this year. It's whether you know, we don't have a stockpile of these things. We don't right. know how to manufacture these other things. We right. it, it, I mean that, that has been and then you take that and say, well maybe we've learned a lesson but we rarely do. It's, it seems like, the, like human memory doesn't you know sort of the physical reaction of memory doesn't seem to go much beyond you right. Know, I know. I agree. And I think, you know, um, for the work I do, one of the things that we talk about a lot, so I, I work a lot on surveillance systems. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's about detecting outbreaks and, and having good data systems and data architecture in place so that you, you know, all the tech in the world, you still need to know how many cases you have, where everybody is, those basic things. And at the moment, um, surveillance itself, the data that could support better surveillance for health systems globally are just very weak, very patchy. The data is siloed. There isn't good capacity, human capacity in place for uh, to sustain it. And so part of the, the thing that I'm hoping that we learn from this outbreak is that some of the emergency um, the sort of emergency data architecture that we're putting in place can be sustained post-COVID and expanded to create a better system that's more resilient when there are emerging outbreaks that happen. And again, that's a very, we have a uh, one of my graduate students jokes that we need uh, data managers without borders. And the uh, the tagline would be boring, but necessary. And yeah. I, I think, you know, we live in a time with where there's more borders than there were 10 years ago. Yeah. It feels like there, there are a lot of entrenched yeah. uh, you know, geopolitical issues that maybe data, but, do you find that data sharing is a lot less than it should be in a time where we're all facing the same 
Yeah, and I, I think it's the, it's the same as the vaccine the the vaccine question. It's there's a across the board. How do we think about both recovery and preparing for the next pandemic because it will happen. So in in between pandemics, let's say we get through this, um, you've create you've created we've created whatever the world we we've created or unleashed certain types of. Um, surveillance that allow for tracking and tracing and isolation and all of, you know, containment, all we wish, you probably wish they would have been deployed before or invented before. Where do we then get into a danger zone of it being, you know, surveillance state type of yeah. uh, worries versus just protecting ourselves. I think that's a an huge and central issue. Yeah. Um so the work I do, we work with mobility data from mobile phones. Um and that's aggregated and and we've worked for years on data privacy, um you know, trying to make sure that the regulatory frameworks are there so that people's people are never identified as individuals in the data set and and so on. And the, and that's been a very slow process that was frustrating at times, um, but with good reason because this is a this is a massive issue. And now what we've seen with COVID is that the floodgates on on this the kind of data that I work with have sort of opened. Uh, I think it was very quickly obvious that this kind of information was useful. And then you had all kinds of actors entering the space for the first time without being aware of the the long you know, the effort in data privacy and all of those kind of guidelines around that. Um, and and indeed, I think um, we're in this sort of um, tipping point where we have to really clearly right now define what we need to do to protect data privacy and what the limits of that should be. So it, it can be as simple as things like, how long can the data exist before it has to be destroyed? What are the rules around aggregation? Who gets to see it? How should the um, data sharing agreements be structured? All of those questions um, need to, to happen so that we don't slip from public health surveillance into state surveillance yeah. for other reasons. And I'm, I think that's a really legitimate concern that needs to be considered. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you would have asked me before this, I would have been especially worried, but I was already concerned that the big ad tech companies in the world were the best at surveilling you, right? You know, people were concerned yeah. about election fraud. People were just, and I was like, it's, it is pretty concerning that the way that surveillance had been used to sell us things in a way, and then, you know, and then suddenly we want protected by it. And I do too. And it's, yes. it is a big question because even if you make rules, who, who is the, who are those making the rules and controlling the data? And yeah. then there are different countries at play. And then there's, I mean, it's, it is really complicated, but I, when, when I'm thinking about this though, if things had been deployed, if, if technology that you had identified before this, whether it was for trade, I don't, you, I don't know if you worked on Ebola, I guess, did you work on Ebola? Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, where there were some efforts where, you know, things were contained, they were found and, you know, maybe working on some technological and scientific solutions in between identifying things. Uh, I, I'm, you know, and was there a point in this where you said, if this had been used, we could have contained it. And now by this point, we're working on a different um, assumption where we're talking about the future, not the immediate containment of COVID anymore. 
Um, I don't think I can say that if we use mobility data initially, we would have done a better job um, in the way that we use it. I think it's a form of intelligence, like it's an inform of uh, it's a form of just added information that decision makers can use. And you need to also have epidemiological information and all these other things. I would say that if you look at somewhere like South Korea, they their Korea Telecom was very involved in in containment that was quite um uh, they had a high level of insight into individuals uh, and their data. And they did uh, have done a, a good job of containing the outbreak. So there is always inherently a trade-off in public health, right, between, right. between kind of personal privacy of your data and the public good. Um, and it's managing that in context and different different cultures, different governments have different tolerance for that. I mean, I think the most, the biggest takeaway of this whole epidemic is the importance of trust in government. Uh, and that's been kind of the, the defining feature of who's done well and who hasn't done well, um, apart from, you know, the strong response and testing and everything. But public trust um, is, is critical to any public health effort. And so these questions about data privacy and state surveillance and public health surveillance really bump up against the culture of trust in any given country. Um, and, and I agree with you, it's a really thorny issue because national regulations, how are they enforced, different companies are in multiple countries. Um, I think it's going to be a, a very important discussion moving forward. And, and some people I know think that it's sort of the cat's out of the bag to some extent. Uh, and the yeah. question is, how do you reel it back in? I don't know. Right. I mean, it's, it's very hard to ever do that. I think, I mean, I, I, I remember in maybe late January, I was, you know, I had some indications this was going to be fairly bad early on. Um, not, and I, I had said, and, and you already heard I'm concerned about surveillance day type things, but I said we should be doing, um, you know, random PCR tests at the airport. And uh, people were shocked and horrified that I would say something like this for a disease that's killing a few people in China, you know, it, it was, and now that would seem like such a small thing. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, quickly when it reaches your street, things, people's views start to change. Well, I, I think as well, like there's a, this fundamental difficulty people have with understanding exponential growth. Yeah. Right. Like it's, you know, there, it's it's very hard for people to understand that 10 cases now, you know, is not going to be a trickle of 10 cases a week. It's it's nonlinear. Right. Um, and so thinking there's been some magical thinking about, you know, it well, that won't happen here, even though it happened in Italy. Right. Or, or whatever. Right. I, you know, <laughs> magical think is an interesting thing about it, too, though. You had said trust also, and we we're talking about trust in either people using our, our using our information, our data, our uh, you know our personal lives. But there's also a different trust, and now you're definitely probably stepping outside of your expertise and asking your opinion. Um, there, there. Although expertise plays a little bit because you know the field, you know other leaders and other epidemiologists. You know, you do know virologists, I'm sure, and policymakers. <clears throat> there's also just a trust in information that we're getting. So when you put, when, when a model comes out um, and, uh, and predicts 60,000 people dead by August, 
um, in mid-March or early April, something like this. And it and it's so grossly wrong. Getting back the trust from having released that model that that that, that knowledge and expertise actually exists, and then having certain conspiracy theories that sometimes can be right or wrong about where, why certain information was revealed and not others. I mean, we see on the, not the expert level, but you see, you know, in the Woodward book, Trump being told early on, perhaps that it was more dangerous and him not revealing it, but we have it, you know, Fauci and the WHO were calling very low numbers of mortality in, in yeah. early March. Uh, is there a time when you hold, how do we deal with this being honest, holding back that honesty? And do you think that, and which side has gone, what has gone too far on either side during this? My, my opinion is that um, a huge amount of this, I think, to be clear, I think you should always be honest. Yeah. And I think that there are ways to be direct and honest and really clearly communicate uncertainty. Yes. Because the yeah. bottom line is, uh, the, at the beginning of the epidemic, there were certain uh, very high-profile groups that were making predictions with not very much data, using not particularly good models, um, and they were very loud about it, and they were very um, confident, so they didn't discuss uncertainty. And right. a lot, you know, the, the rest of us in the modeling community were looking on aghast, um, and I think that the key here is that we have to, I think there's been, um, there's, there's been a tendency to lead with the numbers rather than talk first about uncertainty and, and process and, yeah. and process. And look, you know, this is what these models are. It's not magic. It's literally, here's what we know. Now we're going to multiply by how many people are in this place. And we're going to make an assumption about how infectious this thing is. And these are the rough range of numbers we come to. And then, you know, I think most people, okay, not everyone, but most people are reasonable. Most people want to do the right thing. And if you say, look, our model range is this to this, we're really worried. Look what happened in Italy. We're going to be conservative and we'll keep you posted. I think most people are okay with that. And, um, and what, yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. I think that the dishonesty or the, you know, is the, the the sort of simplistic answers, then they get it wrong. Yeah. Becomes the big problem. That's a recipe yeah. for disaster. And to, so, to be fair, like sometimes there's a, um, a tr- translational pipeline issue where you, you try to say uncertainty, the policymaker only wants to hear a one sentence message, and then a journalist's or the journalists, you only get a minute or the, and a half. Or the journalists, or even I've seen it many times this year. The headline is not even written by the same journalist that did the interview. The headline is wacky. And of course, it, it um, sows a lot of distrust. And when you have that in the context of a social media environment that's just full of misinformation, it's very difficult to pick up the, the signal in the noise. Yeah, I mean, there have been a few moments that have made me really angry during this. And again, I'm, I mean, I come off very different now than I usually do. I'm sort of a technological utopian and I'm vintage. I'm, I, I believe things are possible in ways that most people don't usually. As long as the physics works, it should be able to be made. And um, yet there's been times where I've been really depressed and angry, as most people, I think, have over the last few months. Um, and, I, I, you know, there and, and it generally has to do with that, this, what, what you're saying. It's either 
it's 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 either an honest mistake or or it's not or it's really bad judgment yeah. right so a, a big a big thing and I'm curious what you think about this is a big thing was how long they told us not to wear masks whether it was the WHO whether it was the CDC you, you know and the excuse now for that is well we needed them for healthcare workers and first responders so they essentially told us it didn't matter you know yeah. but, but in order to conserve them and there's there's something that you have a long distrust then of what are they, what are we being told now? And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. I'm always running that filter now when I was told masks didn't help. But I think, <laughs> but I think there's an, sense, by the way, to me. Yeah. But. but there's an important, there's an important point here that I think is really, is really has come to the fore in the last eight months is that there's a difference between the level of evidence that most scientists use in their research and that they would use in a peer-reviewed publication. And there can be legitimate disagreements I'm between sure. equally qualified people about something. And, and you know, the, the burden of evidence that you would need to say, we know this prevents transmission for an academic paper is very high. As a policymaker, it may be a completely different calculus. And so there's also this, this issue that, um, you know, there was, if you look at the literature on whether masks work on an epidemiological level um, to reduce transmission overall, it wasn't, it was kind of patchy, um, you know. You didn't think it was clear the masks were good for transmission? I think it was a, I think it was the most reasonable, it was a reasonable thing to guess that masks were going to be a, an effective tool to prevent transmission. But I wouldn't say most of the actual research that had been done on it had been done in um, like medical settings and for other types of studies. So, so that's part of the issue, I think, is that, that like the scientific, like if you went to a scientific conference and you were trying to talk about what the evidence was for a specific amount of transmission reduction per mask worn or something like this. Oh, well, yes, yes. That's, okay. that's a different conversation than should we be wearing masks as a policy? So I think yeah. that there's, there's, yeah. and this has come up again and again, right? Herd immunity as a concept in, in, an, in a sort of academic setting where we discuss thresholds and coefficients of variation and stuff, right. that's different than a, a, a strategy for public health. No, no, I, I understand. And we have to, and we have to make decisions prematurely. Yeah, with, un, with uncertainty. With and, I, and, and that's, and I think that's probably... I mean, but, I mean, you can always look at this stuff in retrospect and say, well, if you were going to make a decision um, quickly, err on the side of, <laughs> of saying that it appears that masks would make sense if it if it helps with healthcare workers not transmitting, it probably would be for anyone. And I think but a lot of people were saying it's a that policy decision. I understand. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were saying that early as well. Um, yeah, and- just not the WHO or. Anthony Fauci or the people that the United States were looking at. Yeah, to. and I, I, I completely understand why why people, you know, I have, uh, you know, my dad is like, well, this these models are all wrong, um, you know, and it's like, well, yes, <laughs> you well, know. Does, okay, that, but I'm I'm stuck on the mo- on models because I get it, I get it completely. What you're saying, they have to be wrong. There's, I mean, as as far as they're at, they're much better. Then my guess and some, you know, uh, conversation over beers 
about how, what's going to happen. They were even better in you know January 18th or whatever. But now more information comes in and models should get more and more robust. How are we seeing that right now? And is that true, first of all? I mean, I, it, or does it get more complicated? Let's, leaving aside mutation. Yeah. Like, no, oh. no. I, even regardless of that, I right. think that, um, so, so here's what I think. I think that the, if you look at the, the easiest bit of a curve to model, if you think about it, is the exponential growth piece. Right. In the absence of any control or intervention, right? You 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 have exponential growth and everything's going kind of according to di- the dynamics that you've laid out in your equations. Fine. The minute you get complex, spatially heterogeneous behavioral dynamics that impact contact rates, you suddenly have a much more difficult time forecasting um, because now you're not able... So many of the assumptions of the simple models, which are about kind of... um, which assume mean field kind of behavior and all of that, um, break down. So the minute that we started to have um, very different policies in place, people behaving completely different than usual, so you you can't use the parameters you might have fit from a previous epidemic. Um, and and you have you know if you think about so the reproduction number right, which is this uh, kind of a measure yeah, of the, yeah. measure of the growth rate. The components of the reproduction number are the probability of transmission given a contact, the frequency of contacts between people. And then in the denominator is like how long you're infectious for. So those are the basic components of the reproduction number. But this, this key parameter, which is the frequency of contact between susceptible and infectious people, right now, and, and I would say, you know, soon after interventions went into place, it's very hard to measure that because it's a context-specific local kind of parameter that can vary. You know, we've seen super spreader events, which are very high contact rate type of situations and so on. So I I would say that the models might get more robust in the sense that the parameters are more and more certain, but those are the, but I'm speaking about the biological parameters. I think the behavioral parameters remain highly, highly uncertain. Right. Okay. Oh, I get, I, I, okay. I, I get it. So it, so while there's there is more and more known through time, you can add more and more inputs to your model by adding. Then there's also then a propagation of uncertainty, which each of those that you add. Yeah. So even calculating are not becomes more difficult. Well, I think so. So there are major uncertainties. One is the other. The other one, of course, is that because we don't have accurate accurate confirmed case counts we actually don't know how many people have had the infection so far. So we don't really know how far along we are in each location. But the other, the, the, thing, the thing I think is that the epidemiological parameters, like the biology of the virus on an individual level, we know more and more about, but the human and behavioral aspects remain extremely difficult to understand, measure, or forecast. Like, you know, how will the elections affect contact rates in your model? That's a really good question. How can we think about measuring it? How, you know, it it creates a huge amount of uncertainty that I think makes it almost impossible to make sensible forecasts right now. What other, you know, if if you were to look at what other disciplines to bring in or what other experts that have maybe nothing to do with epidemiology or virology, you know, because it's 
you know, cognitive psychologists or sociologists yeah, or I political think... scientists. Are, are all the are, are there are there rooms of people there working on the models with you that have absolutely nothing to do with your field? Normally? I think economists have have started working a lot on this mm. for obvious reasons. Um, I think social scientists are important. Um, and as you say, you know, I don't know, anthropologists, political scientists, people that think about human behavior to especially in response to shocks or you know, other things. Um, so yes, absolutely. There are other fields that, that can inform kind of thinking through how to better parameterize the models. Um, so, and I think the social science piece of these quantitative frameworks is, is definitely kind of a, a necessary expansion and, and focus that we need to, we need to include because, um, really that's that's what's underlying transmission right now and we it's very hard to parameterize that one of the nice things about these models is that they're simple and elegant and you know they're tractable and 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 um they're intuitive but with the additional complexity of human behavior and local anomalies and and things it becomes very difficult i mean you know and, and things that we would do for instance we we you know, sort of complex machine learning tools, including things like reinforcement learning agents and autoencoders and things that get completely out of the intuitive human realm, right? So this is, it's, it's no longer just a good calculator. So this, this is, uh, you know, this is alpha go, you know, this is yeah. something, a move a human wouldn't make or under even understand why it was made. It's a black box. You can't even dissect it. Um, how much are you turning towards um, machine learning tools that wouldn't even have been available for previous um, epidemics? So there, there's a, a lot of people in the field have have used machine learning for some time, actually, to try to, especially in the in the realm of forecasting. So throw everything in there and see how well your your projection is um, does, and it, it's it's okay for those kinds of approaches, right? Which is you know, it's a, a black box to some extent, but you do a pretty good job of forecasting a week out, three weeks out, something like that. And those, um, those I think are useful. One of the reasons that I tend to like the simpler mechanistic models is that if you don't know um, the drivers of your dynamical outputs of your model, it's really hard to validate it. And it's really hard to think through an intervention. Um, and the other piece, you know, because in the mechanistic models, we would design the intervention using the mechanisms in the model. So, you know, you can ask what if questions like, okay, here's the mechanics of how the epidemiology works. What would happen if we did X, if we reduce contact rates oh, this much? You could do that. About. Yeah, and you can do hybrid approaches, right, that, that use some combination of things. Um, I think the um, that sometimes the number of parameters in the, the uh, machine learning stuff and the, the lack of reproducibility sometimes runs into problems in understanding why your model is doing something. Um, and I do think that matters because it does matter because, you know, you, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to design, um, trying to understand the biological mechanisms that underpin the dynamics rather than just make a statement about what, I think for making statements about what will happen next, the machine learning approaches can be very useful in terms of forecasts. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I guess having a fairly deterministic model would be kind of helpful right now, but I guess you could do, you could do both in parallel, maybe one informs the other. Yeah, I think that's true. 
a range of different modeling approaches. I guess some machine learning outcomes um, that have good predictive ability could give you good inputs into a a mechanistic model. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think there's also... Or the other way around, actually. Yeah. And so um, actually in my group, we work with a group that does uh, machine learning approaches to try to bring the two types of models together more. Um, But there's also, you know, ensemble models or combination model approaches where you would never rely on one single model approach. You'd do lots of models and then you'd either combine them, um, combine their outputs, or you just compare them side by side and try and get an understanding sort of broadly of how they all behave. Because, you know, you can have models that all make reasonable assumptions and come out with different answers. Right. You know, when I'm I'm talking to you and it seems like I'm going back to should have started with all of this, but I, I feel like I learned a little bit more about you and just learning, looking at your approach, you know, you're into mechanistic models. You want to make sure that, um, that, you know, scientific um, scrutiny is different than policy scrutiny and public scrutiny. And that maybe there, there, can you go back a little bit on how you even got into this and what drove you, um, you know, whether it's your academic background or your personal background that drove you to take these approaches and get into epidemiology at all? Um, so I started out as a zoologist um, and really interested in evolutionary theory. Uh, and then I and then I did a PhD that was all dynamical models, population dynamics um, of um, bacterial pathogen. And I think the thing I like about it, apart from being, you know, important public, sort of important for the world, um, I like the idea that you can uh, describe what could be a very complex um, epidemic using a mechanistic approach that's sort of elegant conceptually, um, and and it works quite well. Um, And so I think thinking about the ways that you can apply both theoretical frameworks, but also new types of data to answer some of these really important questions. And for me, the focus has been malaria for a long time. And part of that is because um, I'm interested in kind of uh, vulnerable populations um, and thinking about the ways in which we could combine theory with data to make it an impact in the world. And part of that was part of the reason I got into that actually was because I was terrible at lab work. And um, I also get bored easily. And um, I sort of like the theory. I like the elegance and the sort of esoteric um, pieces of the theory, the, the aesthetics of it. Um, but, but, I like, but I wanted it to be really useful. And so it's, for me, it's always been about trying to take some of that and make it applied. Oh, okay. I get, I'm glad I came to it at this time because it kind of, it's it, that's cool. It makes sense to me. It's kind of like a theoretical physicist looking for you know an, an elegant unified theory uh, that also though would be worried that a black hole was going to suck in the planet at the same time. Right? Yeah, like a theoretical physicist. Everything, nothing. You know, this this is not doesn't have an immediate practical application, and you don't really care. It's just the mathematic beauty, the universal beauty of things. You're doing the same thing, and this has been a driving passion. But at the same time, there's vulnerable population. It's, yeah. it's, it's, I, I get it. I wow. think I think a lot of people that do the work I do have a similar mindset, where it's like, you know, and I work on malaria, the parasite. It's the most um, amazing 
parasite in terms of its life cycle and evolution. And it's, it's just, um, it's just incredibly interesting biologically, but it's also hugely relevant. So you get to satisfy both parts of your personality, I think. Right. So an AI approach would be somehow disappointing because you wouldn't know what happened. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, well, you know, what's the answer? We don't know. Right. Well, even if you even if you knew the result, you would you would you know the answer. You wouldn't you know would, why. Would, right. Yeah, and not knowing why seems to me really problematic if you're trying to fix it. But also just not as beautiful to you. Definitely not. No. <laughs> well, I, but, uh, I, I, mean, I, I don't want to be here at asking you to make predictions because <laughs> it goes against everything we've talked about so far. <laughs> um, so I, I, um, I, I would just... I, I'd really how like to hear though how you how you generally feel like not not your health although I, I mean I hope you're healthy certainly but uh, how how do you think that the and maybe it could be you it could be colleagues I mean we're dealing with so much of our own emotional um, and 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 physical conditions surrounding this. I mean, you talked about your family, your friends, everybody asking you things. It's got to be taking a toll. Hmm. How much does, how, how much are you feeling a weight of, of um, COVID on you outside of the virus itself? Um, I would say that everybody I know who's working on this is pretty exhausted mentally and emotionally. Yeah. Um, it's been, uh, you know, we're not, actually used to being on podcasts and in the limelight at all uh, yeah. and it's not our favorite position to be in and i think and, and i think um no don't and, you worry know, we don't have that much of a light and many many of <laughs> yeah many, many of us are trying to you know i'm trying to get back to my malaria work as much as i can and um i i think it's been a really draining year really exhausting and and it, it feels i think for me i've been i've felt a little disillusioned um, by the seeming, the seeming disconnect between what, you know, what we've been trying to advise and, and say about the science and what has happened with policies, uh, that it doesn't, it, it seems as if some of the work we've been doing feels futile. Um, and so a lot of us, I think, are now return, trying to return to, to our, our day jobs, as it were, um, just to get some semblance of, of normal life again. And I, I mean, I am hopeful in the sense that I think there will, there is some functional immunity. I think there will be a vaccine. I'm very worried about inequitable distribution of that vaccine, but, uh, you know, this time next year, I think we'll be in a very different place. So I think for a lot of us, we're sort of in survival mode. We're pretty tired, but we recognize that there's huge uncertainty and a long way to go. So, um, yeah, I would say overarching feeling is just sort of somewhat exhausted. Yeah, I know. I mean, we, we've, we, I certainly feel the same and, um, I'm sorry to exhaust you on this. No, no, I've I've enjoyed this very much. It's been great. Uh, I I really, and I, you know, I I hope that we can get together in person sometime and, uh, things will be okay for us to be in person. I know. Uh, one day, one day we'll, I think, uh, 
Um, I think, you know, I honestly do think that by, you know, in a year's time, we'll be in a, a different situation. I very much that's hope. A, that's a long time, Caroline, a year. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, that's actually a relatively optimistic prediction compared to some of my colleagues. It's going to so be a tough winter. I think it might be a very tough winter, and and especially for us here in the Northeast where it's dark and cold. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the seasonality piece that we talked about before, I do think that the winter is going to create conditions that will promote transmission. So well, we're going to be inside, right? I mean, it's We gonna... will, but, I, you know, I it depends whether people are going to be adhering to um, social distancing rules for inside gatherings and so on. So yeah. we'll see. All right. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Thank it. you for having me. Very nice to meet you. Good to meet you.